Ready? Welcome to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. Today we are talking about the 1844 doorstopper classic, The Count of Monte Cristo. We have a lot to talk about, the cultural relevance, the history of it, our personal history of it, some light plot character setting stuff. We're going to dive right into it. But first, I would like to introduce our guests. First, Manda, as usual. Hi, it's me. Is it me who you're looking for? (laughs) It was. (laughs) And then we're also here with return guest Keegan, our head of youth services. Hello. Hi, Keegan. And then we have a special guest in our fourth chair, Scott Richardson. Yep. Is here. And Scott, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Scott Richardson. I am a senior training specialist at Altair Engineering, where I um, enjoy making training for engineers to learn how to do simulation, digital simulation around the world. Um, I also grew up with an intense love of books. Mm. And so sitting here and talking about books is like my second love. Yay. We're very excited to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And um, so let's just jump right in. Amanda, would you like to give a little synopsis of the book for those who didn't have to read it in high school? I will. And this is a super long book. So if you haven't read it yet, buckle Buckle up, buttercup. And after you read it, you will have to decide which version of the movie you like the best. Because in my research, Scott's shaking his head no. Like, there are no good movie versions of this. You know what I learned? There are over 12 movie and TV adaptations, with the earliest coming out in 1912. How crazy is that? It sort of makes sense. It makes sense because it's a very cinematic sort of story. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, too, that one of our earliest silent versions of a movie was this book was chosen. Mm. So which shows that it's popularity after all the years, uh, the book came out as a serialized, um, it came out in serialized form in something called, and I'm going to, I'm going to put, be really upfront guys. I do not speak French by any stretch of the imagination. So I will botch and butcher all these pronunciations. So I apologize in advance for anyone that actually can speak French out there. Um, so this was, uh, serialized in 18 parts and it, started coming out in 1844, and it ran through 1845 in the Journal des Debats. Probably not how you say it. Olivia smiling at me like that's really funny. I was encouraged. That was an Thank you for your encouraging smile. So a little synopsis of the book. Our main character is Edmond Dantes. He is a sailor from Marseille in France. Marseille, I'm sorry, Marseille in France. He is soon to be the captain of his own ship. He is happily in love and about to marry his fiancée when um, some folks that he know grow very jealous of him and plot against him to throw him in jail so he will rot and they can sort of benefit from the things that were supposed to be his relationships, his fortune. And while imprisoned, he meets, um, what was his title technically? Um, Is he, he was an Abbey. He was Ab- an Abbey Faria, I believe. Abbey Faria. Thank you. So he meets this gentleman in prison who starts telling him his life story while, um, Edmund shares his, they get to know each other and the, the Abbey tells him about, uh, the Treasure of Monte Cristo. And I will leave you with that cliffhanger because I don't want to tell people too much if you mm. haven't read this because there's so many fun twists and turns and um, and a very kind of melodramatic plot, in my humble opinion. It's a really fun adventure story. Um, it really sucks you in. I Actually, my husband and I both have read it many years ago. And when I was looking at my copy last night, I pulled it off the shelf and I read the first two paragraphs to him, and we we're both like, ah, oh, you know, you just want to read. You want to figure out where this is going. So great. that's my synopsis. Yeah, that was a great synopsis. Thank you. Uh, so let's get into how we all know the book, our personal history of it. Scott, you picked it. So why don't you yeah. start? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So as I mentioned, um, as a young kid, I was just immersed in books. Um, I my parents actually bought me for Christmas a set of children's classics, which had like uh, Treasure Island, oh yeah, and Count of Monte Cristo and Three Musketeers uh, by the same author, and uh, I think there was one more uh, that that was in that set. All of these were illustrated on one page, and they had the the plot on the other page. And I read this book, The Count of Monte Cristo. At the time, I hated it. I was like, <laughs> this is this is the worst of these four books. I just <laughs> I can't read this. Um, 
I came back um, probably about 12 or 13 and said, let me give this one another try. I think there's something wrong with this version. It was, it was an abridged version. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things in the uh, unabridged novel that, you know, kids may not get. Um, and so I started trying out unabridged versions and found myself immersed in this book mm-hmm. um, over time. And I think it takes a little bit of maturity um, in just lifestyle to understand the loss at the beginning of the book that mm. propels you down that road. And I think over time as I matured, a lot of these things started to connect with me and I kind of gained this, this appreciation for the book. Yes, cool. I think we've all probably had experiences like that. Like the, we say um, in library world, the right book for the right reader at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely had books that I tried when I was younger and it, I couldn't connect with it. So yeah. movies, even like songs, like if yeah. you hadn't had those experiences yet, they don't hit you. Well, like I think that. you hit the nail on the head too, Scott. Sometimes the kids' versions, because they have to cut out anything too racy or sexy, you do kind of miss some of the plot development. And also this is, you know, quite a, um, a paperweight, if you will. And so I know I've seen the kids, uh, I think there's a great illustrated classic that I'm thinking of, and it's probably maybe 200 pages. And we're talking the big font and the thinner page or the thicker pages, my copy. I was flipping this open. I'm like, Oh my gosh, look at how small the font is in this. Now I read this with eyes that were like 20 years younger. So now I'm looking at this and I'm like, Holy cow, I need a magnifying lens. (laughs) So (laughs) what about you, Keegan? Um, well, this for me was assigned reading, I think in either the ninth or 10th grade. And so I started, I, I brought my original copy that I read in the ninth or 10th grade. It's, um, a Bantam classic. Mm -hmm. And I do remember it being, um, one of the books that it was required reading over the summer. And the one that I actually enjoyed, I feel like a lot of times when you had those summer reading, you're just like, oh, cause they're so dry. And I feel like a lot of times that that reading is assigned at an age where again, you can't connect with it. Right. You know, you don't have the life experienced you know you don't necessarily know the historical backing that made it significant um so you you just don't have a lot of the context but you know even you know not really understanding at the time french history um i remember really liking this book and then um i want to say probably in my early 20s i picked it up again and read it and i just remember it captured me so much at that time that i went out and i bought an unabridged version and then after reading the abridged version, I sat down and I read this giant thing. <laughs> um, and I remember at the time thinking, well, you know, there might be some passages that are, you know, just real, um, you know, kind of essays on French history. Um, and it does explain a lot more, I think, about French history and, you know, Bonaparte and everything in the unabridged version. But I, I don't think it's so much that you're like, oh, gosh, and you're just like turning pages or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um and I just remember enjoying the whole thing. And um, I was really excited when I heard we were doing this in a podcast. And I'm like, Olivia, I want to be part of this yeah. podcast. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, okay, I need to reread it. Um, and I had um, some friends over for dinner, um, a, a, li- a librarian from another local library and her husband. And I was telling her about how I was rereading it. And she also loves The Count of Monte Cristo so much. And it was so funny because Two days later, she texted me and she was reading a book that she really wasn't feeling. And she's like, I almost want to reread The Count of Monte Cristo. And I'm like, do it. Yeah. And she apparently, she binge read it. Like she raced right through it within like less than a week. Wow. <laughs> Which I thought was hysterical. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've been rereading it and, you know, I'm just really caught up in, um, you know, how much it, it pulls you in, what a really well-woven story. There are so many pieces that are woven together and, and even just the writing itself. Um, I, it, it's um, that third person omnis point of view. And, um, and I, I feel like so much is communicated with so little words. Um, like it doesn't go into like lots of description about how any particular character is feeling, but you, you pick up on the nuance mm. based on the dialogue or, um, you know, little bits here or there. Like, um, I don't want to give too much away, but one point when Countess de Morcef, when you see her again and she was originally Mercedes, um, when the Count of Monte Cristo meets her, they start referring to her as Mercedes again. Oh, interesting. In, instead of the Countess de Morcef. Wow. Which I know I'm also 
pronouncing incorrectly. But it makes me feel better about my really yeah, botch. No. Just wait, folks. There's a couple more. Yeah, I'm no, let's I just give ourselves blanket yeah. grace to <laughs> just pronounce the yeah. French however mm-hmm. we can. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I could go on. It has always been my dream to be a book club where we got to talk and dive deep into the Count of Monte Cristo. So I love that you said that about how there are these little sort of subtle indications of how people are feeling. I think that's. We talk a lot about plot-driven books rather than character-driven mm-hmm. books. Um, and I think that that is often a mark of a really good plot-driven novel is that the author is able to... It's not that there aren't character arcs in this. Obviously, there are that there aren't you know, rich characterizations in this. It's just done in a more subtle way so that the plot can be mm-hmm. the driving force. And Keegan, just I'm just going to jump in and say my personal history... Mm-hmm. Because it mirrors yours, Keegan, I read this as a summer reading book in the summer before ninth grade. It was one of those summer reading years where the books were just, every single one was uh, amazing. And I loved them all. It was, had a great teacher that year. I remember reading it like outside in the summer in my parents' yard. I remember distinctly where I was when I was reading it. And I was just like, how is this a school book? Because it's so fun and exciting. And I like they were like you said, they're, you know, some of the books they assigned us before we were really ready or before I was ready to really understand it. But this one, I was like, I get it. Like this Mm -hmm. is everything a kid like a feral little child still close to that, like revenge, revenge. Um, injustice, which was a huge theme um, for me. Anytime there's an injustice in a book, it's like, okay, now I need to know what happened. You know, it's that, it's a big theme in kids' books too because kids get so riled up. The treasure story aspect of it, there's just Treasure. Treasure. (laughs) Like outwitting people. There's so much of that. Yes, yeah, like and like a thriller and like tricking people. Mm-hmm. That was a huge like oh Dis- disguise a new yeah. identity. Yes. Yeah, disguise. That's huge. I mean, what kid doesn't want to try to be somebody else for you know? It's so fun. How about you, Amanda? So first off, I have to say I'm very jealous because I did not get assigned summer reading when I was a kid. Oh really? In high school. Mm-mm. So when I went to college, I felt really behind the curve, mm. and so I did a lot of reading on my own. Like what. I used to go to Barnes and Noble or Borders. I can't, I think it was Borders had Borders classics and they had the spinner racks and it was like their cover of Moby Dick or whatever. So I went through and I used to just buy all of those and then read them on my own. And I had bought this um, book when I was in college, I think. And I finally read it uh, when I was in my early twenties. I think it was the summer I was 23 and I have a very clear memory like you. I worked on a farm and I would go on my lunch break. We had an hour for lunch and I used to like grab a sandwich really fast and go jump. We had a hammock behind this pond, behind the building I worked in. And I would kick off on the tree really hard and get swinging. And I would read while this thing swung for like an hour. (laughs) Now I would probably like feel vomitrociously dizzy nowadays, but back when my vision was better and my, my, uh, my body's sense of balance. Um, and I loved it. And for the very same reasons, like I loved that there, you know, it was just so many different things than what I expected when I started reading it. I love the idea of this wholesome character and then these horrible things happening to him and the sense of, you know, people wanting revenge in this story and the sense of injustice, like you said, Olivia, when I was um, when I graduated from college, I was very much like I love the movie Dirty Dancing because I very much identify with that baby character. I was extremely innocent, you know. I wanted to go in the Peace Corps, but I did. I decided I was going to do AmeriCorps first and stay in the United States and try that out. So I had this very like self righteous kind of um, sense about myself. I think looking back now, and um, this for me is a summer book. Like I'm yeah. looking forward to reliving that summer many moons ago of just laying in her hammock and reading this this summer. I'm enjoying it. I, like, I'm so excited. I'm actually going to not put this back up in my library. It's going to stay on the counter until June when I'm ready for it. Oh, all right. I know. The next step book. I know. I'm very excited. So thank you for picking this, Scott. Yeah. You're like you've made all of us revisit something we <laughs> really know. enjoyed, which is kind of fun. We're so ignited. I know. Um, So before we jump into talking about the book itself, I wanted to give a really quick um, sort of historical context around the book. Um, So I 
decided I would just research Napoleon because I knew nothing about him really. I knew um, my whole life. I don't think I, I, you know, maybe we learned about him in school and I just forgot. But all I really knew was that he had a complex. He put his hand in his coat when his pictures (laughs) (laughs) were painting. And that he conquered a lot and that he was like real worry. He he liked to be carved in stone on horses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. That's all I really knew about him. I don't know if that was him so much as artist of the time. (laughs) Let's pretend it was his thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was really into that. Um, But okay. So the book takes place um, at during the time of Napoleon. And um, I looked into this period of time called the 100 Days, which was around 110 days in France when Napoleon returned from exile. There was just a brief time where he kind of mirrored the journey in the Count of Monte Cristo. He escaped essentially from exile. So I just, I'm just going to blow through his like really short um, biography. I'm sure this is going to be people who are really history buffs are going to notice things that I say, but just just go along for the ride. Um, so he grew up in Corsica. He was not wealthy. He didn't have a very important family or anything like that. But he got a scholarship to a military academy and worked his way up in the French army. Um, he rose up the ranks around the time of the French Revolution, just after the monarchy was overthrown in France. Um, he led, in 1799, he led a coup against the existing government of France, which was installed right after the French Revolution. And so he threw, overthrew that government and called himself the Emperor of France in 1804. So, like, not someone who suffered from, like, a low self-esteem at all. He <laughs> called himself yeah. Emperor. And he was really inspired by the Roman Empire. And That's so, yeah, it was, like, a big thing for, <laughs> for him. Um, he wrote something called the Napoleonic Code, which is sort of a guidebook code of conduct sort of guidebook. Um, And then I wrote, in 1800s, fought in many battles and conquered. So he he was conquering. (laughs) He's fighting. He's very successful in the army. He's, you know, obviously the emperor of France. Um, I read that he had a very um, sort of complicated legacy because there were quite a few things that he did that the people of France really loved that he created. Yeah, you know, you have to be suspicious of someone who, like, calls himself emperor and like is essentially a dictator, but he did create progressive, positive change throughout his time. He standardized laws, simplified the court system, worked to make education more universally available. That was a big thing for him. Um, he advanced science, modernized the economy, created opportunities for like the regular man. And uh, it's important to say that it's man. He the Napoleonic Code was very, I wrote, was very rude to women. So there was not a lot of, like, feminism going on in Napoleon's time. But he did create more opportunities for people who weren't, like, nobility or wealthy. And then in 1814, he was forced to abdicate due to increasing enemies, military defeat. And he was exiled to Elba, which is an island in the Mediterranean, which is where we start to see him in the Count of Monte Cristo. He escapes from exile and sails to Paris in 1815 fights against the royal army because it was a monarchy again by that time and wins. So he sails to Paris, leaves exile, sails to Paris, takes down the monarchy for that 100 days, which they call the 100 days. Um, and then he's defeated in the Battle of Waterloo and then the France falls back to Louis the 18th. And then Napoleon's exiled permanently. There's a lot of Louis to keep track of. There's a lot of Louis. We're at 18 at this point. And he's very, it says he's very conservative. And so he was, you know, very different from how Napoleon was running things with all that kind of progressive change. Scott, you were nodding a lot. Are you a history buff in this regard? Did I say anything? No, not particularly. But, okay. you know, in kind of tracking the history of the the media of Count of Monte Cristo, you'll find that Hollywood likes to kind of modernize or mm-hmm. adapt things so that modern audiences can recognize them. But this particular historical fiction really couldn't happen in any other country in this mm-hmm. way because of this, the monarchy and then the popular overthrow and then Napoleon coming and then being exiled and coming back. This is really a book that's just as much about France's mindset and how French culture kind of shifts as it is about the characters within it, because they use that as like a, a push for the plot. Mm. Like the fact that this flip flop is happening 
drives the first third of the book mm. very strongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think we can really, people who've grown up in the United States, like I have, can understand how revolutionary <laughs> that would have been. Mm-hmm. Like your government is not only new people ruling the government, but new forms of government. Is that sort of what you mean by the culture shift? Sure. Um, and, and you know, as you alluded to as well, there's also this sense that how you get to power or how you get to notability actually shifts over time. Mm-hmm. Under the monarchy, you could get a brevet that would actually give you like long-term benefits as a member of access to the monarch. You could walk into his presence and actually say things. And you see this at the beginning of the book. Over time, French society shifts so that the most important people are people who have served in military or mm-hmm. people who serve in industry, which is where we find characters at the end of the book but that's not common to the monarchy setting at the beginning. Mm. And so you, you see people like chasing ambition throughout the book, but it's not a linear path. They have to move to, to oh. make these things happen. And it's in that move that you find a lot of this like, I mean, am, ambition is never really put as a bad thing by the mm-hmm. author. Um, but it's when that ambition crystallizes in the wrong direction. Right. And, and that's where you see, like, these subtle things. It's the things that are never said by the author. Like, what happened in this space of time? They never write about some of these things. There's, like, a 10- or 15-year gap. And so when you, when you look behind that, you're like, well, okay, so somebody shifted the way that they were going after something uh, because the popular mindset of what made you powerful, mm. like, changed. And so this person decided they were going to go for that. Mm-hmm. And that's where you find at the end of the book, like, somebody knew. That was going to happen, and that's when they made their move. Something we talk about a lot, too, is that um, being born into influence and power mm-hmm. as opposed to, I mean, we talk about it now in culture with, like, Nepo babies. Like, the, you know, did how, like, you know, were they born into this, you know, fame or whatever, you know, success? Privilege. Privilege. Yeah. We talk about privilege a lot, obviously. Or did they earn it, or is there sort of like a combination of those two things? Um, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know Napoleon essentially. I mean, he he earned his success. I mean, it you know it was sort of a dubious success in some ways. Something I find always interesting is um, I at one point I was a history major and. I don't remember even in college when I was taking all these European history classes, learning all that much about Napoleon. And um, something that's always kind of bothered me, even when I was a history major, is I feel sometimes when you learn about history, you learn about it in silos. So like you talk about French history, but something I think is really interesting to consider in this context is the American Revolution happened like just at the onset of the French Revolution. And, you know, thinking about that history, about how the French supported um, the United States in separating from England, um, and then right on the heels of that launched their own revolution. And, you know, I think it's important to think of that context and how all of that kind of, kind of bleeds together and, and what was maybe happening in, in the larger world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what it meant for the United States to be able to overthrow England and create their own government and, and maybe how that spurned, certain parties to think that that was possible too in France. Like inspired by yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. There does seem to be a hesitation to look at what other countries are doing and mm-hmm. learn from them, but it seemed like that was. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like there's a relation and yeah. relationship there. And I feel like we very rarely talk about all of those things Yeah, together. Um, I've, I've always tended to think of Napoleon in kind of the same breath as like Alexander or Genghis Khan yeah. in you know, they're, they have this idea that the world is going to exist under them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Hitler did it too, but it, it kind of shifted the way that uh, nations came into war. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look at it from the sense of, of this particular novel, a lot of the things that he did, uh, he fought in Africa, he mm-hmm. fought across Europe, and he actually amalgamated alliances across the European continent. And so France, he made France responsible for kind of heading this group of nations that once he was out, they had a very different relationship with France. And so the, the government had a different responsibility in kind of dealing with their, their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Italy as a country was in a very different space. There was, there was kind of a Tuscan alliance and, and other sorts of things going on there. Um, and you see they deal with a lot of the Mediterranean, kind of the southern areas there. But the idea that we get this glimpse of what's going on in, in the halls of power at the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. we kind of return in that direction at the end of the book, but we're no longer dealing with this like this idea of nations trying to deal with their internal struggles or external struggles, um, that we're really looking at a cosmopolitan view of you know what, what Europe can bring to the table, and even Russia, we get a little mention of Russia in there mm-hmm. too. Um, but it, it very much mirrors to the way that these characters are trying to portray themselves. Like right. you've got a general or a lawyer or a statespersons or, or a banker that believe themselves to be kind of this, this uh, intra-European kind of mogul. Mm-hmm. And yet at, by the end of the book, they're kind of broken down too and, and, and what they purport themselves to be is shown to be false. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I think that leads really well into our sort of general discussion of the book and thinking of when, you know, you said Napoleon thought of himself as this leader and he should be the one that's sort of in charge. The world is under his control. Mm-hmm. And that is what we see happen with the count too in the book, right? So um, he kind of takes destiny into his own hands and wants to control all of these other people. So should we talk a little bit? I know your your synopsis was spoiler free. I think we can probably, if you don't want spoilers, maybe just like fast forward the fast next ten forward. minutes. Yeah, because <laughs> I think we we need to talk about the plot. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this character, what his hero's journey is. So how does how do we find him at the start of the book, and then what? How does he progress as a character, and then how do we see him at the end? How, and also, how do you feel about this character? <laughs> so it's for, for me, and um, there is kind of a, a time gap in, in the book because um, spoilers are okay. Yes. So um, he gets out of prison and he gets this treasure and then he does some good a little bit. And then there seems to be this time gap of about maybe 10 years. And when he comes back, he's a very different character. At the very beginning of the book, before all this, you know, tragedy, you know, comes to him, he seems to be this kind of, you know, innocent character wanting to do right by his fellow man, kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. Through his journey, he's he's taught a lot by Abby Ferry, who's kind of a second father to him. But also, you know, you can tell a little bit that he becomes a little bit more harsh when they start talking about, you know, maybe escaping. He responds that he would be okay using violence and, and killing one of the guards, for instance. And the Abbey Ferry is like, no, you have to promise not to do that unless it's like a last resort sort of thing. But then when he comes back as and refashions himself as the Count of Monte Cristo, and I'm I'm still rereading it right now, it's like he's he's not particularly likable. Mm. You kind of look at him as a character and and there's this this harshness because he's, you kind of get the sense, even though you, you don't know exactly what he did in those 10 years, he has spent a lot of time plotting and equipping himself to exact his revenge. And I think it's left him a much harder person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not finished rereading it, but from what I, I do remember, there are some places in the story where maybe that that earlier Edmond Dantes comes back in ways where he makes choices to pull back his revenge because he still has care for Mercedes and um, Maximilian Morel, for instance, who is the son of the ship owner who, who tried to help him when he was in prison. So like you, you see places where there's like that softer maybe first Edmond Dantes, but, you know, he's he's very harsh. And in that way, I, I feel like that's partially maybe the real tragedy of the book, that he becomes not just that he was in prison and that he lost, you know, his freedom and um, that these people did these horrible things to him, but the impact I think that it had on him as a character, that it made him this maybe really hard person. Mm-hmm. That loss of innocence. Is yeah. probably why it appeals to teenagers too. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I think because I mentioned before, like like you're you're just observing this. It's it's not like it goes into these huge inner monologues where he's thinking through these things. Like you you just kind of see the pieces based on some actions or some dialogue or you know maybe even someone else observing mm-hmm. him. So I think that's really the magic of the story. Like you 
you pick up on all this this nuance. I think there are a lot of um, elements in this book that are kind of ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Edmund Dantes, the young sailor, his perspective is really limited in scope. He cares about the people who care about him. And he tries to care about everybody. And that ends up becoming kind of part of his downfall in that he, he tries to give to people who they're at a different stage in life. They're interested in just protecting themselves. When he goes into prison, he goes through kind of that standard, almost all of us would go through this kind of shock and grief phase. And when he opens up, it's to the Abbey who lets him know that there's more to life to first solve his issue with no other information there. And I think this triggers something in Edmund that you see for the rest of the book, time gap and the part that we're actually walking through with him. And that is the information is his weapon more than any money, more than any sword that really the things that he can do with information, with knowledge actually are going to transform his life. And the treasure itself is actually secondary to that. And mm -hmm. so when you see him start working, it's with an idea to like figure things out. So he's, he's this mental kind of like giant first. And then behind that, if his mind can't do it, his money will. And so this idea of him being this, this cold calculating sort of person never leaves uh, past that point. And, and if you look at it through that lens, um, that, that same kind of information dominant strategy with the power following behind has kind of been, I think that's something that Americans can kind of understand yeah. in, in mm -hmm. like an easier sense now. But it's, it's a very modern kind of way of seeing the world because we're such an information-focused society. And I do think that's one thing that would appeal to, to modern audiences. Do you root for the count? I think, I think it becomes difficult to. Mm. Um, and it's not necessarily because of his motivations or his ethics. But if you look at the way that he has spent the intervening years that we don't know about collecting dominoes and setting them up, his ambition by the end of the book is that they fall by themselves. And so he's not so much making things happen as people are being exposed to the results of their own finality. Do you root for him, Key? I mean, in a way, but, you know, you, I think your hope for him, like when he escapes and he finds this treasure that sometimes I feel like, you know, the best revenge is living well. Mm -hmm. And yes, he's he's rich. And but you think about all of his relationships, as Scott said, they're they're all calculated. Yeah. Like everything he does is so calculated. And you know, you can tell he has some people that are are loyal to him, but how many of those people actually know him and, you know, have a close relationship and and you kind of there's almost this part where you almost want him to reunite with Mercedes, but you know, that's really never going to happen. And, you know, not to give it away, but there is kind of a love interest at the end, but, and you have maybe some hope for him at the end, but, you know, you just think about how many years he spent doing all of this on his own. Yeah. And this being his focus and instead of maybe enjoying life or rebuilding some relationships. And that's, that's, I think a part of the tragedy tragedy is that He's just spending all of this time, like Scott said, stacking up these dominoes into a certain way so that, you know, he's almost taking a step back and it's like, well, if they make the right choice, then they'll be fine. But if mm. they, if they um, give into their worse or nature, mm. then it's their own fault. Thinking about how much time and effort had to be put into that. Yeah. When it could have, like, he could have been thinking about other things, enjoying <laughs> his own life, building relationships, finding love. Getting a hobby. Yeah. Take, yeah, take that treasure yeah. and get a hobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go somewhere else and start over, friend. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about stories with redemptive arcs for antiheroes at the beginning, mm -hmm. like The Grinch or The Christmas mm -hmm. Carol. Those, you know, a loathsome character has a heart of gold by the end. Uh, and this seems to be the opposite of that. We start with like this loss of innocence. We have this really innocent Edmund at the beginning. And I think making him so sweet at the beginning and so honorable and ethical, I don't think it would work without that. And I don't think it would work without the betrayals being so awful 
because he has to be so brutalized. You know, his life, they have to ruin his life essentially Mm -hmm. to make us even a little bit root for him by the end because we can say, well, these people ruined his life. So, and if you don't have that, then the story rings false because we don't, the stakes, revenge isn't enough for stakes. It has to be, I'm getting my life back. I'm not just avenging my dead parents or my, I'm avenging this innocent self that was so well constructed at the beginning of the story that you killed, you know, that these people killed. So that, I think they, it does a great job of that. I remember rooting for this character, even though I don't like revenge stories necessarily all the time. I thought it was very successful in those ways because it was set up so well. I was just thinking there I'm not advocating violence and revenge by any stretch of the imagination, but there there is to me something still satisfying occasionally when we are trained as adults that you make nice, you learn how to play in the sandbox with other adults, right? That's what childhood's about. We we prepare people to be these evolved humans where you can play nice. So it's fun to me every once in a while in a fiction where the person just goes off the rails yeah and gets their revenge now do i advocate that in real life no that's why it's called fiction right we can we can empathize with the character because he his life was destroyed he has to rebuild he's obviously angry he's lost this person he's loved he's lost all these opportunities his family members have died while he was imprisoned um so there is something satisfying and sort of sexy about that. Now, I read this when I was like 23. Of course, I was like, yeah, go team Edmund, right? I don't know what it's going to be like when I reread it this summer. Maybe I, my heart has changed and I've matured. And I'm going to be like, no, this is not. I don't I don't root for him so much as I root for whatever. Um, but when you were talking about that it also made me think about, so we talk a lot about places as characters on the podcast. I think my favorite relationship in this um, book is Edmund, like his relationship with the prison itself, right? It's this metaphor without needing to be a metaphor because he is literally imprisoned. But I think of like the ocean in rocks, right? Rocks get smoothed over time in by the power of the ocean. And I think about this story then. And I wonder if Brene Brown wrote this book now, I feel like he would be this more evolved character that would be able to like go and forgive and move on and be more Zen. But that's not the story that's needed, right? Right. If he had therapy, maybe he would be a different person. He'd be a different person. Can you imagine this 21st century story now? It's like, Mm. what's happening? And as as you guys were talking, um, because I I just reread this part. Um, So when he comes back as the Count of Monte Cristo, he meets Albert de Morcef and his friend in Italy during this festival season, and they see an execution. And both of the younger characters are left kind of pale and trembling at the experience. But the Count of Monte Cristo talks in great detail about how he has made kind of this study of, like, punishment and I think that is your clue about where he is as a character and like who you are meeting now, yeah. like 10 years down the line and, and just how hardened mm-hmm. he is. And I think there's actually a quote in the book that suggests that, you know, for as many ways as there are to die, there are things worse than death. Mm-hmm. And so if you care to like speculate about those intervening 10 years. It's not just a study of death, but a study of how to not live life. Mm -hmm. And a man who's used to pushing the edges of everything, from poisons to implements of of murder, methods of dueling. I mean, the, the author makes very explicit mention of every last one of these things because he's out here studying the means where you can change another person. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's making these means to change real. But he's also, as he says, he's nearing himself to anything that moves him. So he's going to be the immovable object, just like those rocks were. I mean, if you, if you want to go back to the allegory of Edmund and, and the prison itself, mm-hmm. he transforms into the prison that, yeah. that kind of entraps these other people. Yeah, and then they have to live in it. It's suffering rather than death. Yes. And in a way, I almost see, because, you know, like I said, I, I 
I've said it before already that I feel like, you know, the real tragedy of this book is is how hardened he is. And I, I feel in a lot of ways, even though he has escaped prison, he is still, you know, kind of in his own prison, prison yeah. you know, as, as a person, because what was done to him, even though he has gained his freedom and all of this wealth, he, he is still like stuck in in that situation, even though the walls aren't around him anymore. Right. But but this is a character that still on the second floor of his house sleeps with the windows open so that he can always see the sky. He's impacted by what he went through. Yeah, yeah a trauma. The more we talk about it, the more I understand why they uh, assign it in high school. There is that feeling as a teenager of, yeah, that loss of innocence. There's a lot of injustice when you're a teenager, a lot of other people controlling you, and that feeling of loss. You've lost your childhood self. It is really hard them. You know, I worked with teens for a long time and they often talked about their childhood in these like wistful ways, like this loss of that, the time when I was, you know, taken care of. But then there is this redemptive thing that happens. Like when you, you, you know, at the, at the end of your teenage years, when you start to feel like an adult and you're like, oh, okay, this part isn't so bad, but the, the teen years are traumatic. What year would you say that emotion finally kicks in? What? <laughs> Feeling like an adult. Oh, oh. Mandy, you'll get there. You oh, just keep plugging away. Olivia. You'll get I to the trying. end of your Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> My emotional Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> What else? Anything else we want to say about the book? Why people love it? Why we love it? As as I've been rereading it, and I think I probably did this the last time I read it too, um, I can't tell you how many times I have to pick up my phone and, and... Google things like like did this really exist? So, um, the prison, the Chateau d'If, it is a real prison. Mm. It still exists. You can tour it cool. if you want to. Um, Abby Faria, um, I think I I googled like you know did he just make up some mysterious illness that that Abby Faria died of? Um, but no, if you Google it, there are people who have theories about what exactly he died from. Mm. Monte Cristo is a real island. Why you don't know, we go yeah. get the treasure. Yeah, um, I think we so should get the library to pay for a trip for the four of us to go. And yes. get probably. <laughs> that, that said, it is owned by the Italian government right now, mm. and they have a limited list of people who can visit every year. About That's 300. We're on it, probably. So we're going to... We're, we're kind gonna, of a big yeah. deal because yeah. of the Move podcast. The yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's go. We'll find our way. Yeah. Shout Let's. out to the Italian government. We're going to need you to bump us to the top. Yeah. We'll yeah. be there soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Abby Farias story about the Cardinal Spada like those, those are real people. Like they existed yeah. in history. So everything he put in here was based on some form of reality. And I think that's just really intriguing. And like cool. I said, I, you know, I'll read a few pages and then I'm like, oh, and then I'm like trying to find out more about something that's mentioned in the book. So I'm definitely Google earthing it after yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing that helps for me, I got a very specific version of the book. Uh, Penguin Books has a master library version uh, that I absolutely adore. One of the things they do is they actually put footnotes in the various languages that the book was written in. Nice. And so you'll be looking through things that don't have exact like English or American counterparts. And so you'll get this little like hit of something that's specific to a culture. Mm. Um, and so you start to look through these spaces where the story of Luigi Vampa or the Cardinals, and there's a lot of Italian in there where they'll just break that down for you and you understand a little bit more about what's going on. This is definitely like a historical historical fiction. Yeah. And it's it's a very lovely thing because if you can kind of understand your history, like it draws you into the history of the, the real places so that you can really immerse yourself in why this kind of fiction happens the Mm. way that it does. Um, And it's probably a little bit more relevant to the midsection of the book than it is to the end. By the end, you're kind of carried along by this whirlwind of things. But the way that that the author uses this to set everything up is really elegant. That is a great segue, I think, Mm -hmm. into Amanda's fun fact section. Scott, you mentioned before we started recording uh, about... Alexander Dumas house. Yes. Can you mention that little fun fact? Because I don't have that in my information. I thought that's pretty cool. um, In in his time in Paris, he actually had built a Chateau de Monte Cristo, which I believe is in Paris around the Champs-Élysées. And so he used it as kind of his writing room. And like he'd have people over and you could visit. I do believe it's still there and it, it has been converted to a museum. So at some point, if I make it to Paris, 
Yep. The Tuileries, Versailles, and the Chateau Monte Cristo. Totally. Okay. So you want biography first or who was the inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo Whatever first? Whatever tickles your little fancy. I guess we'll start with the biography. So quick biography on Alexander Dumas. He was born in 1802, and because his grandmother was a black woman, was considered a quarter black in French society of the time. Why that's important is black folks in um, France at that time did not tend to raise to the ranks where they did. His father would have been, um, he started, and I'll mention this more later, his dad started in the military at uh, the lowest rank possible and raised up to the ranking of a general which was not heard of as at the time for a person of color to be that high up in the army. So it's worth noting that Alexander Dumas then sort of, um, he received a lot of flack for being a person of color, being a writer. And he was also writing at a time where his contemporary was Victor Hugo. So he had sort of, I don't want to say competition because I don't think it was like, hey, I'm going to outright you. But it's just interesting to note that as a person of color, he sort of rose above, I think, the expectations of society to become this very famous author. He's still considered one of the most famous um, authors in uh, French history. His dad did come from a family that had money, they had titles, but by the time that Alexander came along, uh, his father had lost the family's money. He grew up in um, in poverty. His dad died when he was, I think, four. So they were uh, struggling even more. But because of his family name, he was able to get himself a position in the office of Louis-Philippe, who is the Duke d'Orleans. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. French speakers in the room. And uh, Louis-Philippe was later the king of uh, France. So while working for the Duke, Dumas began writing plays and articles. He started hanging out with theater folks, young writers, and he actually started to gain a name for himself and become successful enough that he could quit his day job and become a baller writer. He, in his lifetime, actually wrote over 100,000 pages, which is a huge amount for anyone that's ever tried to be a writer. I know Olivia and I both sort of have dreams of writing books, and I think even you too, Keegan. We all yeah. want to be writers. And, it's hard. And it's <laughs> hard. Sure you too, not. Scott. Sure Scott's yeah. like, all right, let's do it. We're in it. So if you think as as someone that wants to write like myself, or even if you don't, how, how much of a struggle it is to put just a, a page worth of thoughts down of something that's actually like valid and readable. He wrote a hundred thousand pages in his lifetime, which is phenomenal. Um, he wrote over a dozen novels. He wrote histories about France. He wrote um, plays. Obviously, the things he's most famous for would be The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers. Um, he had a spinoff story about just D'Artagnan and uh, The Man in the Iron Mask, which is, if you want to feel sad about life, watch the movie version with Leonardo DiCaprio with the world's worst wig on. It's super <laughs> gross, but also kind of fun. What, late 90s, early 2000s throwbacks? And I think those three tend to be the most popular because they have been translated into a million languages and they have been done over and over again in TV shows and movies. So um, Dumas actually died penniless, so kind of full circle. He was quite a spender when he did have money. He died penniless after being, uh, he fled France, he was kind of pursued out of the country by his creditors, and he died in Belgium, probably not eating a chocolate-covered waffle because he was penniless. We can imagine that he was, though. But let's pretend he died after a really delicious waffle. Um, so I did some research, and there is a question about who the real inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo is. And I know Keegan and I kind of talked about this a little bit. So there are three stories. So... And I'm going to have Olivia put all of these um, sites and articles I referenced because there were, I think, six different sites and articles that I read for this one that were the major influences. I did a lot of research. Yeah. This is very interesting. Very interesting. I could have written about 10 more pages. I felt like I was actually writing a high school paper that I enjoyed uh, when I was working on this. Anyway, so our three stories. So some say the story was inspired by this Tony Stark-esque scientist character named Diodat de Dalamu. He was a geologist, and uh, the rocks, the Dolomites, it's a type of rock, as well as the mountain range in Italy, both were named after him. Some say, so that's one story. Some say it was inspired after uh, by 
a shoemaker named Pierre Picard, not Pierre Picard, Jean-Luc Picard, that's who I kept thinking about, (laughs) Pierre Picard, who, according to the PBS Great American Reads page, was falsely accused of treason and, once released from prison, embarked on a course of vengeance that spun wildly out of hand. And some say it was inspired by Alexander Dumas' own father, Thomas Alexander Davy de la Palatiri. I'm going to just botch in all the names. And I like to think this is the most accurate, and so I wrote the most on this one. And I know Keegan will probably want to talk about this a little bit too. So moving forward, I'm going to call his dad Thomas for just to make things less confusing because we all have we, the name Alexander appears in a couple of people's names. Anyway, so Thomas was born out of wedlock on the island of Santo Domingue, which is modern day Haiti, to a Frenchman, which was Alexander Antoine Davy, and a local enslaved woman by the name of Marie Sassette Dumas. Thomas was taken to France. Um, accounts vary on how old he was. Some say he was 5'6", some say he was as old as 14. He was freed by his father once they got to France. Again, he was his mother being black, he was considered a person of color, even though his father was white. So he was freed when he got to France, and his father, now a marquis, Um, decides that even though Thomas wants to go into the army, he's not going to let him keep the family name because Thomas is going to start at the lowest level. What we would call what, like, uh, what's that? Our privates. There we go. So he's going to start in the army basically as a private. Dad doesn't want him to use the family name. So Thomas begins to use his mother's last name of Dumas. Long story short, um, Thomas works his way up to being the highest ranking, um, level in the French army, which is a general, as I mentioned earlier, very big deal. And so this is kind of where we circle back to the theory about Alexander's dad, Thomas being the inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo. So there is a book called The Black Count, the epic true story behind the Count of Monte Cristo. And um, a gentleman by the name of Tyrone Beeson wrote an article in the Seattle Times about this book, reviewing it. And he says, quote, the story of the Count of Monte Cristo in which a sailor is wrongfully locked up in a fortress and seeks justice afterward echoes what actually happened to his father as a prisoner of war who loses favor with Napoleon and fights just to receive reparations for his ordeal. So apparently, as his father was working his way up in the military, he was a very... He was very, a very beloved member of the military, but not only was he a very fierce fighter, he was very compassionate. So anytime um, they would go in in a battle and they would win, he would tell his people that he supervised, you know, no kind of raping, pillaging, no destroying things. And um, that made him even more beloved. I think what I suspect kind of happened from everything I read was as he got higher and higher, Napoleon started to get kind of nervous about his ability to control the groups of people that he was overseeing. And I'm sure Napoleon in the way that he came to power probably had some concerns. So when they um, are traveling and he gets thrown in jail, Napoleon has every possibility of taking, helping the father get out of jail, but he decides to leave him in there to rot. So I would definitely say in my humblest of humble brains, that to me, if I were Alexander Dumas, and I'm familiar with this story, that would definitely be one of the things that I'd be ruminating on as yeah. I began writing The Count of Monte Cristo. Take it away, yeah. Keegan, because I know you're actually reading the book. Yeah. Well, I haven't started. Oh, that you yeah. have the book, yeah. though. I yeah. haven't started. It's it's as soon as I finish rereading The Count of Monte Cristo, I am going to read um, The Black Count. So it is on my to-be-read list. But okay. I actually have a fun note on the story of Pierre Picard. And I mm-hmm. was just looking into it last night, and so I wasn't able to like really follow it down to see all the truths. But there are some notes that um, this Pierre Picard, he had a very, very similar story to what happens in the Count of Monte Cristo, where he is thrown into prison, manages to escape, finds a fortune, and then starts wreaking revenge, seeking revenge against those who wronged him, but that it doesn't go that well for him, for him because I think there's like a duel or something like that because someone gets wise to who he really is and he ends up being fatally wounded and, and he dies. And from what I was able to find, there is actually a note in Alexander Dumas, his his notes and things like that about this exact oh. thing. But the story of Pierre Picard comes, it, it became more well known from a work called Memoirs from the Archives of the Paris Police by Jacques Pouchette from 1838. And and we know that Alexandre Dumas, or at least from what I was able to find, um, was aware of this. But what they're saying is that perhaps 
Jacques Pochette was overly romanticizing this archive of the Paris police. And there is no real evidence that this actually happened. But the archives themselves burnt down in 1871. So there is no way to know. So (laughs) I I think perhaps that The Count of Monte Cristo was maybe... uh, an amalgamation of mm-hmm. of yeah. many of these things, maybe a little bit of his father's own history, maybe having read about this account and the memoirs from the archives of the Paris police, you know, per- perhaps it all kind of just melded together yeah. for him to become what we have now. Pierre Picard, the story I read, said that. So he went back and one of the people he had known before he was imprisoned helped identify all the people that kind of screwed him over for mm-hmm. lack of a better sentiment and so he started going after them and started systematically killing them and that guy was the one that came back for him and killed him Mm -hmm. at the end was the guy that had given him all the names is what i'd read now interesting stuff just even doing the history the reading on the history it's like man yeah just right i think this is one of the places where you know the author gets a little bit of help because this book was written serialized Oh, sure. You, you kind of have a little bit of time to be like, hey, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds interesting. Because there's, there's parts in here where you're like, okay, you must have really slowed down to write this part. Yeah. You get into the, the discussion of Luigi Vampa or uh, an account of what Carnival was like at Rome. And the book shifts in this, this very intentional way. But you look at these descriptions of uh, the general in this story. Or, you know, what was going on with some of the legal processes around Napoleon and, and the return uh, of the monarchy. They're in the later portions of the book. And so you have this opportunity to take this character that you've kind of fleshed out, but he's kind of on hiatus while you're writing the later sections. Mm-hmm. Like you can afford to kind of weave this in and make the end of that thing interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it, it really is cool that although you have this like interim part where you're setting all the stuff up, Although you have this detail that kind of fleshes that out at the end, it also doesn't lose its speed. This this book mm-hmm. kind of ends like with a bang. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, Scott. Do you know, I didn't see this in when I was um, reading about the, how he published this in serial form. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know from college English class that Dickens wrote, his things came out in serial form as well. And they actually say that that is why some of his, oops, sorry, some of his books are so long was because he got paid by the word. Mm -hmm. Was this the case too? Because this is definitely a meaty book. Or do you think he kept pretty close to what he wanted to say and pretty concise to the story? Or do you feel like there are moments where you kind of question, did he get paid by the word in some of these scenes? (laughs) So I'm going to fuse together what I've read okay um, and, and I think the publication you know was to some place that needed the length okay but we also know from his lifestyle he needed the money yes and so I'm going to suggest it's, it's probably. probably very possible okay that he was just like you know what we need six chapters on the life of Luigi Vampa. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. there's Money. That, there's that chapter where he uses the word very like 17 times where he's like, oh, Louis was very, 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 very tall. And you're like, wait a second. His editor was like, okay, that's, I'm not paying for that. <laughs> Did you ever do that when you were like in middle school and you had to have so many... Oh, you would sure. use the yeah. same, and it's just like, oh my gosh. First couple of years of college. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, oh we're, I think we can move to our next site. Does everybody have a book to recommend? I, we can I, skip. I do. You do? Can you come up Hit with it. one? I, I can come up with one. Okay. Um, so thank you so much. This was an incredible discussion. I can't wait to put this up. Um, we are going to leave our count for now, and we are going to recommend... This is a brand new thing we're doing. We each get, I think I said 30 seconds. Sure. I, that's not enough. I think we're going to do a minute each. Okay. Um, where we each can recommend a book. It can be a read-alike. Uh, it can be something that's a read-alike that has the same kind of appeal factor. So if you're reading The Count of Monte Cristo and you really loved it and you want to read something like it, it can be that. Or it can just be something that you're reading right now that you mm-hmm. like and that you want to recommend to people. Let me get my timer out here. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. Um, One minute on the clock. Wait, hang on. And go. Okay. So I am going to mention, even though I haven't started reading it yet, The Black Count, which is the story of 
Alexander Dumas' father's life because now I'm all in. I also just wanted to mention, you know, in the world of classics, my other favorite classic is actually Pride and Prejudice, which is very different. But I think that they are both the same in the fact that they have universal themes. And I also think that they're really both written for the common person to read and enjoy. And they're both very accessible, even even today, to to enjoy. So yeah, and I'm hoping that one day we will be able to do a podcast on Pride and Prejudice and I will so be there. And that we will, will be, we will come in our period dresses. Yes. Like our and that will be Empire I, Waist. I dresses. have a Pemberley t shirt that I will wear that day. So all right, Olivia will okay. read will wear her um Darcy wig. What would yeah, that look like? My white ruffled shirt. <laughs> bring my horse. It, it, is, it is very difficult to find <laughs> men's period wear for, for that. You're going to have yes. to learn how to sew it. That's very Speaking difficult. of Edmund having hobbies, why didn't he like he take up sewing? a seamstress? That stuff takes forever. Yeah, te- technically he did. He okay. did take up sewing. Yeah, yeah maybe so, he, he sewed at least one burial sack clothes. I was I about that. to say also maybe like some cuts along <laughs> the way. <laughs> that was my favorite part. I was going to ask everybody what their favorite parts were. Uh, mine was definitely the escape. Yeah. Mine is just mm. everything in the prison. Everything. Mm. Really? The prison? The prison was my favorite part. Just think, like being mad and seeking my, revenge. My favorite part, I think, is when he saved the Morels and he rebuilt the Pharaoh, which had mm-hmm. sunk and it came into harbor. I thought that was... Loaded with everything that it previously it, yeah. had. Yeah. Like, I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> and and I feel like... So that, he did have hobbies, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and, maybe we just... He just had the hobbies while he was gone and we, like, he tried everything. He tried, you know, yeah. basket, underwater acrylic. basket. Yes, yeah, underwater yeah. basket weaving. Definitely. Yeah, he got bored of it. Seahorse catching. Wordle. Warbles? <laughs> Wordle. Don't so I'm going to surprise everybody. My favorite part of the book actually was not like an action uh, so much as it was his first discussion with Viafor. Um, it, he ended up saving, you know, his wife and, or his wife and son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Viafor is like, well, I have a social duty. I got to go. Thank you for saving my wife and son. And he walks in with this haughty air and Edmund turns to him and at some point in the conversation goes, well, what is it that makes you think that what you do deserves to be called anything? Damn. <laughs> and, just, and just breaks him down. That might like, be the original mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, like, I'm writing that down. That's going on a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm just at, at that point, he just he gets in the mind of this man. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because the prosecutor's usually invincible. But, like, this is the one guy who's, like, living rent-free now. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. We're learning a lot about you, Scott. <laughs> Are you ready to do yours? Yeah, let's go. And go. All right. So, first off, props to Scholastic Book Club. Like, I, I bought so many books as a kid. Uh, yeah. White Fang and Time Machine. Um, but the one book that I would recommend, uh, if you've read Count of Monte Cristo, if you're preparing to read Count of Monte Cristo, is actually uh, Jules Verne. Mm. Around the world in 80 days. And the reason is, um, you look at Edmund Dantes, you look at Phileas Fogg, and you have two people for whom the plan is everything. And so for Edmund, it shows up in this way where, like, there's this space where you don't know what's going on. With Phileas Fogg, it's very different. The book is very short, uh, but you're always on top of exactly what he's doing, and you're kind of dragged along with him. So uh, if you haven't yet, go read Around the World in 80 Days. Nice. That is a really fun book. I don't think I've ever read that. I think you'd like it. I'm going to read that one. Jim Dale, who read the American, more American version of Harry Potter than the other one. He does a really good audiobook, and he does all the voice characters differently. So if you want to listen to it, it is also a very fun listen. On, I think it's on Libby. That's where I listened to it a million years ago. I'm going to listen to that. That's a great idea. Oh, Jim Dale. I have such a crush on his voice. Is that a weird thing to say? I just said it. It's done. <laughs> Cut that out of the podcast. I'm, I'm not weirdo. cutting it. No, please do. That's going to be the intro. Okay. And Amanda, are you ready? Yeah. Go. Okay. So there's a really good book called The Mountain Sing by Nyan Fan K. Mai that came out right when COVID started. I had an ARC, which is an advanced reader copy. I read it, loved it. That's not what I'm talking about. Her follow-up book that is also set in Vietnam is called Dust Child. I think it just came out mm, last fall. It basically bounces back and forth between, um, well, it, it's three, t- it's two time periods. It bounces between Vietnam during the American occupation and the war, and then modern day Vietnam, um, 
Well, modern day being, I think it's actually set in the 80s or 90s. So you find out about this love affair between this soldier and a Vietnamese woman. And then it bounces forward to this child that was orphaned and abandoned and had to basically raise himself. And he's trying to figure out the pieces to his family life. And that's a really short synopsis because I only have three seconds left. Okay, bye. <laughs> good job. Very good job. That's a really interesting book. What's it called again? Dust Child. Okay. Lastly, I'm going to recommend Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton. I have read that book. It is so good. It is a memoir, kind of memoir, kind of collection of essays uh, about the author's life. She starts off in her very bizarre kind of childhood where she has parents who are very not always present. So she kind of raises herself at a very young age. She gets a job supporting herself at uh, a restaurant. And then she goes on to um, work in a bunch of different restaurants throughout her life. She writes a lot about the food that she makes and the people that she meets. She goes to U of M for a brief stint to get her MFA. And so she writes a lot about Michigan. So it's kind of interesting to see Michigan from Mm -hmm. an outsider's eyes. And then eventually she owns her own restaurant, Prune, in New York City. It's a wild book. She has a very interesting life, if you like a memoir if you like food books um you will like this it's blood bones and butter by gabrielle hamilton did you practice this at i home? did that's cheating <laughs> cheating all right thank you everyone thank you scott for coming by yeah, come by anytime so very nice to meet you scott thank you thank you keegan as usual bye everybody go read the count Thank you for listening to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. You can find more information about the books and library services we mentioned in the show on our website at troypl.org slash podcast. If you would like to suggest a topic for future discussion, please email us at podcast at troypl.org. Thank you for listening and happy reading.